Hello, this is Stephanie. This is Brian. Hi, I'm Bryn. Welcome to the making and the remaking of A Codependent Mind. We're back with another episode in our new guest season, this time with Bryn. And thank you, Bryn, so much for being here. This has been really valuable to have other voices come into this discussion. And we know that people listening will appreciate your honesty and your courage in sharing your own story. So thank you so much off the top. Yeah, happy to be here for sure. The way that we talk about codependency, it is not something that you're born with. It's not an intrinsic trait, as we've said this from the the first season. So we always, when we start discussions with people, like to talk about their origin story, what their childhood and their, their early childhoods particularly felt like and looked like. And the last two guests that we had had fairly chaotic, unstable homes where there was neglect and in some cases drug abuse and and mental illness. It sounds like from what you've told us, the little you've told us already about your origin story, it is a little more like Brian's where there was stability and, you know, kind of what we traditionally think of as this nuclear comforting family. Can, so can you talk a little bit more about kind of both parts of that experience for you, both that care and love and stability, but also some pieces that maybe created this dynamic where, where you found yourself falling into codependent patterns? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey in my recovery process because I'm sure, Brian, you can relate to this. And I'm really, I'm going to be really fascinated and interested in talking with you about this because it's hard to pinpoint then where our where codependency really started for me but yeah i grew up with two sisters i'm the oldest mom and dad new york in new york upstate new york i say upstate but it's an hour and a half north of the city so it's not really it's not really upstate but great childhood roof over my head my parents were you know, they both worked all the time. They really, they worked their asses off. They, um, my mom was a nurse and my dad's a financial advisor and they provided for everything that we could have ever wanted. We did sports. My sister, my middle sister rode horses. Uh, my youngest sister was into singing. I was into art. We did just everything under the sun, right? And it was supported by both of them in so many different ways. And they made all the games and my dad coached for us. And yet here, you know, here I am still at, you know, almost 37, struggling with some of my codependency characteristics that I think came from growing up and my adolescent years, and then characteristics that I took into relationships, you know, navigating romantic relationships with codependency has just been my biggest challenge. And yeah, I think my father is an adult child of an alcoholic. And so I now see as an adult, the ways in which he could show up for us was, you know, the best he could, but limited, I think in some ways, because of what he went through as a child, he had a bad childhood. And then yeah, my sister also has substance use disorder. And that manifested her addiction really manifested. I was just out of college. So this was she got into recovery in 2014. So it was like five years prior to that, that we were really dealing with her in active addiction. And that was a big, that was like a big catalyst for a lot of stuff shifting in my family dynamics and stuff that we didn't see coming, right? Because of this quote unquote, perfect 
upbringing and what my parents did for us, what they were able to give to us. And it was, I think, surprising that my sister was struggling so, so much with her own self-image to the point where, you know, failed out of college and, and yeah, 2014 was when she, she overdosed in my parents' home. I mean, thank God she was there and thank God they heard her fall and they were home. And that was, you know, that was the last straw. She had been in and out of a couple different treatment facilities at that point, nothing really sticking, no real like program or solution or anything like that. And yeah, then that, that really, you know, entered us into a new phase of, okay, how are we healing from this as a family? And that was when I, I really got more involved with getting my own counseling and therapy and starting to learn about what addiction looks like inside my family. And then because my sister, she went to treatment for 90 days, then she went to sober living and she worked a 12 step program. I was like, okay, I'm going to do all that I can as well to learn about AA and what this looks like for our family. You know, that was, I hadn't, you know, Al-Anon, we had been told maybe to like go to an Al-Anon meeting here and there. And that was like, not going to happen. And it, you know, I think I remember showing up to an Al-Anon meeting being like, what is this? <laughs> and why do I have to be here? Um, I'm confused. And so, and yeah, uh, just been kind of fully immersed in, in the healing process around addiction in my family and, and my codependency. How old were you at this point? What, what, are the, what are the ages that we're talking about here? When my sister was in active addiction? Yes. Yeah, when that kind of started. Yeah. Uh, so I was tw- maybe 20, 21 was when she got into recovery. So it was like... To your later teens years. Yeah, yeah. But you recognize behaviors back further than that, codependent behaviors. You Can you... Well, I was going to, I was going to ask, uh, did you take on the role of, of the kind of, I'm going to help fix the family system or were you already kind of playing that role in your family? Were you, since the beginning, were you kind of a fixer in your family? Yeah. Good question. In that particular instance, I was more of, my middle sister was more like, okay, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do all the things. And I was the one who I, there's all sorts of like family roles that play out, but I kind of ran away. I was like, I'm not, I'm like avoiding this whole thing because I knew it was way worse than what my parents, you know, my parents were like, she's just smoking pot, you know? And I was like, this is really bad. And I was just, I think <laughs> my probably codependency was manifesting in whatever relationship I was in at the time. I was like, well, I'll just immerse myself in this boyfriend, this particular boyfriend. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my codependency, I think started way young. I think for me, it was like, I, I would just lose myself in, in if boys and be having, being a girlfriend, I only felt like I was probably validated if I had a boyfriend and I was kind of praised I think at an early age to also like, oh, she's okay. Bryn's going to be just fine because she's got a boyfriend all the time. And that really went, I I mean, I, you know, I'm still working through a lot of that stuff. And so I wonder if having the boyfriends really young was because my parents were spread really thin. 
like I said, they gave us everything, but we were, you know, between three children and all the activities that we did. And I'm imagining that my parents really were, you know, just still getting on their feet as young adults, right? Um, did you find yourself uh, doing any sort of emotional management or taking on other people's emotions in your family system from a very early age? Like, say, did one of your parents, you know, did they have trouble the way they expressed their emotions? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad was the uh, avoidant, like, shutting down type. In in, re- in relation to that, how did you find yourself reacting to that? Uh, like, Yeah, he just was, a, a mo- you know, like, not available. And I'd go probably be with friends or be with a boyfriend at the time, right? I was like, oh, I'm just going to have this other life that isn't like at home. My mom was the screamer, right? Like that was the other thing that we grew up with was like, they fought terribly. They're so much better now, but they fought terribly. They just could not argue well. And it was a screaming match. My mom just, mostly my mom screaming and my dad shutting down. And I think I would go and do, right? I was I would leave, I would hide, I would run away. And then I'm imagining in my later years that also manifested as, okay, sports, being as busy as ever, and boyfriend, right? Yeah, because what you're describing here is is super similar to my home life growing up. And I've been getting closer and closer, I think, to pinpointing the actual origins of my codependent behaviors within that framework. Because I, for the longest time, and I still say this, it was a great home life. You know, they provided a lot for me, um, you know, roof over my head, a, a decent sized house in a suburb. And and I had one sibling and two parents that were together. And um, it just it was stable. We, they put us in sports also. They put us in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, things like that. Got us involved in music, art, just involved in a lot of things. Right. So it's like, wow, you know, that that seems like a pretty idyllic. But then there were similar things as you. There was a lack of emotional uh, availability. And my dad was your mom. My dad had a really hard time managing his anger. And anger was a go-to for him, um, unfortunately. This thing that he just had did had very short patience. And, uh, and that was his go-to, was angry replies. And I took that on myself. So I took on the management of that. I just felt responsible for it. So I molded my, my being around trying to calm down his anger. And so for me, that was really the birth of, of my codependent kind of behaviors. Well, and then your mom, and similarly, maybe to, to, to Bryn's dad, retreated yes. into depression. Mm-hmm. It, it, she wouldn't step up in those moments. Right. And she also modeled responses to, to those also. So, you know, I would see her just giving in, just going, okay, all right, do whatever it is he he's, he's asking for in these moments rather than, you know, trying to have a discussion. Yeah. My dad's the same. He's, he acquiesces. He doesn't want to acquiesce. He does. And then he gets super resentful. Yeah. And I think he threw himself into obsessing about work. Still feel, you know, still struggles with that, but they don't, they don't fight like that anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, you probably picked up on a lot of that, I would think, because I, I had I had a really hard time saying just it, it, being able to just say I had a great experience and I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I. It's weird, though, right? It's weird because from the outside, everybody, you know, and I'm sure you have similar feelings about this, like having a great group of friends and growing up and like we were the cool house, like we had the best house, you know, and parents that were together. So from this, the outside looking in, everyone's like, well, you guys are, you got, you know, got it together. It is, it's been challenging to pinpoint it as you, as you said, like people that have maybe more quote, you know, capital T trauma 
than we did like it's been hard to to pinpoint it for me and but at the same time then yeah you know you say it out loud and you're like oh well like yeah there was screaming in my household and things being thrown and then me just like for kind of being like oh i forgot about that it was kind of really bad at some points yeah i mean it's it's terrifying as a small child to to, to be in the presence of your caretakers who are out of control, I would imagine. Yeah, the walking on eggshells makes so much sense to me that I've had to do in some of my relationships because I kind of didn't know what mom I was getting that day. And if something set her off, it could be that she was going to scream and yell about it for the next half hour to an hour. Even if it wasn't at my dad, it was at us. But And we were just, yeah, that walking on eggshells feeling. Yeah, yeah. So you're looking for ways to help her avoid setting her up. Like, try to try to set things things up so she doesn't isn't set off, right? Yeah, it was a lot of like the house not being clean or things not being where she wanted them to be. It was a lot of that. <laughs> right, that's exactly that was my experience too. Yeah. So then, then the family molds itself around the person having the emotional crisis, right? So whatever you're feeling as a small child, which is probably fear. <laughs> Yeah, that's not important. You have to suppress that, right? You have to you have to prioritize this other person's emotions. Mm, that makes sense. And then you that I guess that sounded like that. Then that really happened with your sister. Yes. Yeah. Lots of focus on Carly for a good chunk of time, and still now, right? Like watching <laughs> watching some of the dynamics play out still around this in my family i'm like oh wow this doesn't go away ever actually huh people develop some different coping mechanisms or yeah now i've got some more resources but still some of that is there for sure brian's been talking about how difficult it was for him to come to a point where he could recognize the behaviors of his parents that were perhaps dysfunctional and caused some codependent responses in him while also appreciating what they the love and the care that they did give. Mm -hmm. What allowed you to recognize the ways in which your family system, again, not, not any particular person to blame, but the family system perhaps did not set you up for success in, in interpersonal relationships. How were you able to come to that understanding? I think I was obsessed. Then I began, because I was obsessed with being in a relationship anyway, I started becoming obsessed with relationships. I'm like, I'm gonna figure this stuff, this stuff out. I'm not, I've got to get this right with somebody in my lifetime. Or like, I've got to really figure out how to navigate even challenging friendships or work relationships. I was like, okay. I mean, and it was at a time, right? Like we're in a time where everybody's talking about mental health and substance use disorder and saying that stuff out loud, loud, there's like way less shame and stigma. Well, actually, I don't know. I think there still is, but I proudly will talk about, you know, relationships and recovery in a way that I, I wouldn't have done so 15 years ago, but that was what, you know, made me kind of turn inward was like, okay, I'm going to get help around this. I'm going to figure out why I have these feelings. Like, you know, there were times in my, in my twenties and I think where I would lose days of time obsessing and crying and not doing work, like not going to work because of a guy or like, I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you which guy at the time, you know, it was, I was like, there's not, something doesn't feel right to me. And so I think I just started reading as much as I could about relationships, diving into learning about addiction and recovery with my sister and that work 
podcasts were not a thing, but now they're totally a thing. It's like, I've listened to all the relationship podcasts. And then, you know, ultimately leaving a big corporate job to say, I'm going to go get a certification in coaching and counseling. And I want to do this and help other people in it. And, you know, I want to help impacted loved ones. I wanted to help affected family members because I just still was feeling going through kind of a not great relationship at the end of my twenties and say, and with a person in, in active addiction, I was like, I'm not, I don't get why I'm here still. It's like, I know about addiction. Why am I so attracted to this person and this dynamic that we now, this dance that we're in, which is this anxious avoidant, this me trying to save and him not giving a shit about me, like really at the end of the day, what is this? And that was when I left my, a big corporate job. And I was like, I'm, I'm going out on my own and figure and starting a private practice. You know, I was just like, I got, I, I have to figure this out. Was that the tipping point relationship for you? Was that the final, the, the final straw? No, then I dated somebody in recovery and had then after that and was like, this is going to be the one. This is really it. And I was like, wow, I just keep repeating patterns. You mentioned anxious attachment. I think that'd be a good thing to talk about a little bit here because that's actually a different style than I had. I, I was more along the lines, I think, of avoidant attachment if we're going to talk about attachment. Um, so I think it would be a good. Right. Because for you, Brian, interpersonal relationships, you know, especially intimate relationships were places where you felt very afraid. Yes, very unsafe. Very very unsafe. And then you ended up in very unsafe mm-hmm. relationship. I just habitually lined up with basically whoever gave me attention. And uh, that was a terrible person, then whoops, so be it. <laughs> so yours was more uh, avoidant. You would get stuck in these relationships, but you would kind of shut down yeah. and trying to protect, you know, turtle in them and to protect yourself. And that sounds like you had a somewhat different pattern. You approach relationships as perhaps a a source of potential affirmation. Yeah. I, I, and I clung as hard as I could to a person that I thought I could mold and fit and change into, you know, I I could put them in the box, right? It was like, I'm going to make them be the person that I want them to be. The person that perhaps you needed them to be? Needed them to be or whatever. I was like, I was going to lose myself completely in the relationship to be who they wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. It's a different... different type of safe. Brian, I don't know how you feel about like it was a different I didn't feel safe in any of those either, but I also sought them out like my life depended on being in a relationship. Yeah, I mean I guess in a way mine I mean I avoided people, but at the same time as long as they entered my life, I I felt the need to line up and attach myself to them. Yeah. Basically I would I would just line up with whatever they were giving me, whatever emotion, whatever intellectual, whatever creative. Brian's, um, as, as podcast listeners will recall, Brian's personality disorder of choice was narcissist, <laughs> not choice. <laughs> One that got me in the most trouble and stuff. Yeah. And, and it sounds like your was um, drug and alcohol disorders. Is that what you continually found yourself enmeshed with? Right. So later it was, it was that, or there were a couple prior to people with addiction or in recovery, they were just there. Right. And I was like, okay, I got to have a boyfriend. So this one works. And then I'm mad when I was like, why aren't you the thing I want you to be? I did weird stuff in relationships, man. Yeah. And then, yeah. So then I started out on this journey of counseling. And then it really wasn't until I started working a Codependence Anonymous program maybe a year ago. And that 
really helped me take a look at just taking personal responsibility for for my actions and and how I I also try to manipulate situations to be what they're not, you know. Yeah, so talk about that. How it's interesting, right? So you you had quite a bit of knowledge and insight already, but still found yourself repeating patterns for reasons that you you perhaps didn't understand. How how moving through that program, that code of program turn on the lights that still needed to be turned on. Yeah, I think I had the last, you know, my last relationship that I was in was, yeah, with a guy in early recovery. And I knew when I met him that that was probably going to be a problem. And still, I was new to Portland. I think the breakup prior to that one was maybe six months. I was just trying to get over that guy before him and rushed into something just like I always do. And by the time I realize that this person's probably not a good fit for me or a good pick or is not going to be the right type of partner that I need, I'm already in too deep. And I'm like, okay, well, now I'm here. And what I'm really good at is fixing and saving and what does in too deep mean oh just that i was like fall i was like in love was already invested in making it work you know every relationship i just wanted to make it work so i could prove that i am a great person i'm not sure what i'm trying to prove but yeah and so i think that last relationship ended and i was like i really am the common denominator here. And it wasn't like that last relationship was so, it wasn't this like really unhealthy thing. I think we did really care for one another and had some, I don't regret any of the relationships I've been in. I don't see any of them as failures, but there were still unhealthy patterns being played out, whether that's anxious avoidant, whether that's me and my codependency and and that person in particular in early recovery still having to navigate some of his stuff and should have been doing that really on his own and in in his own program and and in therapy some real major trauma there and i just was like i'll i'll take on the role i can be caretaker fixer mediator yeah so when that relationship ended i was like i am so tired of my own shit <laughs> i was done blaming i was done blaming all these other men at that point that and just being like okay i'm really ready to look at it at, and own and that was, yeah, that was like a year ago or so when I got into a 12-step program for codependency in particular. And yeah, I just did some some work around it and continue to, to work on it. And it's been pretty eye-opening and, and nice right, to just have it be on me as opposed to, again, pointing the finger at, at lots of other people. So it's been actually empow- empowering for you. Yeah, totally. Where it sounds like maybe relationships were not a source of power. I mean, I knew saying you, you tried to control and, and, and fix, but that was probably coming from a place of maybe fear or anxiety. Fear, anxiety, selfishness, right? Like I think I know that there's all sorts of, again, like shame and stigma surrounded with the word selfish and, you know, self-seeking. But I just, I started to see it as something different than that. I I guess I started to see it as like, I didn't have to feel judged or chastised when I heard those words like selfish or self-centered or self-seeking. I was, it was that if I softened the edges around those words a little bit and looked at what it like truly meant, I didn't have to be alone in this, like working, working on my codependency. It was that I could be sort of in a community and, and do that with other people who are still struggling with very similar things. And then I, I 
I didn't have to feel so bad about it any longer. And yeah, could kind of take my power back in saying, I don't have to like feel shame around this. It just, it just is what happened to me as I grew up. What are some of the earlier things you remember from once you started in CODA that were the most impactful for you? Like kind of the aha moments as far as like, ah, that's what that behavior was. Yeah. Not giving the people that like people that I thought I loved or people I was in relationships with, like the opportunity to just like live their own lives without me meddling so much was something that I didn't see. I always thought, right. I think a lot of codependency is like, but I help everybody. I'm like, I'm so self-sacrificing. Like, why doesn't anybody do that for me? And it's at the end of the day, it's, you don't have to do any of that, really. Why are we trying to? Do, why are we trying to do that for everybody else? Yeah, we've talked about how codependent caretaking isn't really authentic caretaking. Right. <laughs> that it comes from a place of your own anxiety, mm-hmm. and it is almost, as you were saying, self-centered because it's about it's not recognizing or seeing the other person. The, the codependent self-centeredness is somewhat ironic, right? Because it's not actually it's not actually honoring yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. You're not a- allowing yourself to be in your authentic self. It's almost the self-centeredness of just being in survival mode. Yes. Since a very young age, in terms of relationships are things you have to survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had that same struggle getting to a point where I would just use that word regularly for myself, self-centeredness, like, well, you know, I'm, I was just trying to protect myself. Well, but like what Stephanie just said, if I'm in fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn mode or something, I'm, I'm, I'm self-preservation. It's hard for me to keep anyone in mind, especially if it's an abusive person in front of me, but really anyone around me, I'm in this mode, and I'm reacting in a way that I taught myself to react right or wrong, and most of the time, in my case, throughout most of my life, it was wrong. It was not a great reaction because it was something I taught myself as a little kid. And it's just a self-centered action. It doesn't mean I was a self-centered person. Yeah. In general, you know, I mean, when those things happen, I chose myself and I chose myself in a bad way. I didn't actually keep myself safe. You mentioned um, the community that comes with CODA as being an important part of your own healing process. What what, what are some of the other elements that have really been key into you kind of healing the the trauma or whatever it was that was causing the anxiety and the codependent reaction. Yeah, community has been huge for me. And I have like different types of communities that kind of all feed different purposes in my life, which I'm really happy and proud that I've been able to cultivate this kind of vast support network. If for lack of a better term, it's like I've got friends and I've got yeah, the code of meetings and all the different people that I meet in those meetings that I wouldn't get to meet otherwise and hear those different types of perspectives. And I've got my little, you know, I go to a powerlifting gym. And so that's a very like unique and different community. And I have a little running club. That's a different, unique community. Yeah. So I feel like I get a lot out and different things from each, you know, uh, group within my life. I think just continuing on with therapy and counseling and making sure I've got somebody to talk to that isn't, that is not my friends, just my friends or a partner. And the work with that I've done with this sponsor in CODA has been another aspect that's been really helpful. Just somebody who I can text or call and, and kind of give me a gut check on something has been really just great and helpful. And then 
having mentors that have been there before me and have some wisdom, it's just been really powerful in me being at in the place that I'm at now, which is like feeling really good about my life and feeling fulfilled on my own and in, in the work that I do. And like I said, the community that I've cultivated. And you mentioned that the work that you do now is to help others on this path. What, what does that look like? Because a lot of people who struggle with codependency, for instance, start, struggle to get started. Like, where do I begin? You know, even if I now recognize like, where you were, <laughs> where you're like, okay, this isn't working for me, <laughs> but w- what do I do? Like, so how do you move? How do you walk with people through their own healing in, in your practice? I work with affected family members. So mostly parents and partners who are, you know, in relationship with somebody who's in active addiction or early recovery. Yeah, they come to me and they're a lot of people are at that point of desperation, right? Where they've got no tools and resources. They don't fully understand what's going on. They've never, they don't really know much about addiction in the first place. They haven't really drawn any conclusions yet about being in relationship with the person they're with or and their childhood or for parents parents don't see, you know, just they don't understand addiction either, right? And so they don't see how they participated in the the family disease of addiction. And so I think I get people in the doors who at least like start talking about it freely. Disease of addiction is not unique. And I don't think codependency is unique either. And I'm sure every one of your listeners has heard themselves within some of the podcast's or all of the podcasts at one point or another. And I think this is just the epidemic of our time. Addiction, you know, and codependency really comes, that's like how the the term came about was with uh, Melanie Beattie wrote that book because she was like, I don't know how to talk about the family members of of addicts and what they're going through. And, And so it was coined, you know, through that model. And I just think there's way more resources and help that family members need. And And you find many of the people you work with present with a lot of the codependent behaviors? Yes. (laughs) All all of them. All of them. All of them. And without it, as you're saying, uh, an understanding of, of the ways in which those fit together. Yes. It's wild. You guys have been at this for a really long time. I've been at it for a really long time. And so you forget, or maybe you guys don't forget, maybe you guys do talk to a lot of people who who haven't drawn those conclusions yet I, either or haven't connected dots, but it's still amazing how many people I've come into contact with that are just scratching the surface on learning about their codependency and why they, they've done what they've done in relationships for so long. It's a difficult concept to wrap your head around to begin with before you even apply it to yourself, I think. It's a, it's kind of a confusing topic. Yeah, and we've talked about this, the, the ways in which, you know, as you said, it's coming out of addiction literature and, you know, it's about being enmeshed with someone who's dependent on drugs and alcohol, so you're codependent. But, yeah, if you don't, ha- I mean, if you have an origin story that does not involve um, addiction, classic addiction, addiction to drugs or alcohol, then it can take a while <laughs> to have that moment. To have the, I, I mean, as it did for you, I mean, you had your sister, but that was kind of somewhat a little bit late in the game in terms of your, your own development. Uh, there were already patterns set up before that. It can, it can take a while to say, oh, this it's not just about being addicted to substances. It can also be a response to other types of disordered or compulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, correct. It is a weird, challenging topic. <laughs> yeah, and it's a it's a kind of an odd name for the, the phenomena of codependency. It, could, it probably could have been better named. <laughs> and is is part of the framework that you work with your individual clients the same framework that Coda has, or or do you have a, a, a kind of a program that you've designed to walk? Yeah, I have a, my own my own program that I've designed that kind of takes a holistic approach to looking at the ways in which we we want to change patterns. And I'm a big proponent of having my clients try and get into community with other people because I haven't like really built my own online community yet. I'm like, hey, it's really important that you like think about getting into rooms and spaces where you find community. And that doesn't have to be a CODA or an Al-Anon group. A lot of people find those are, are beneficial, but I'm I'm more talking about the way that I was I was mentioning. I've got different pockets of community that help me um, with my on my healing journey, and yeah, I think it's it's an isolating codependency is isolating in the first place, and so uh, yeah, so I do a little bit of this holistic approach, like okay, what's your community look like? This is the stuff we're working on. A lot of it is working out some childhood stuff, and then. For my clients, it's really like wrapping your head around the disease model of addiction and seeing it as a, in within the family system and doing some like family genogramming to map out um, just addiction and the history of addiction in your family and then where, you know, your codependency might have, have stemmed from. And again, a lot of my clients, if they're partners, they have parents or siblings that also... Um, are either in recovery or also in active addiction. It's kind of wild. It's really unfortunate how prevalent this is in our communities and in our culture at this time. But it, it sounds like really terrific, exciting work that you're doing. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah, very excited. Yeah. And if you have any resources, uh, ones that you've developed or ones that you direct your clients to, um, we'd love to include those in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, I'm happy. I'll share a bunch of stuff with you guys. Well, that's terrific. Is there anything that we didn't ask you that you had wanted to talk about? I wanted to ask you both about the community aspect of your your healing journeys. Is it, is it important to you guys now? Obviously, this has got to be immensely healing for both of you in partnership to do this with one another. And then, yeah, how do you keep up with and maintain some of your community or how, how you see that fit into your your own healing? Well, yeah, I agree that community is, is very important. The biggest reason being that codependency is an interpersonal disorder. And without community, there's no way to even know that you are or aren't being codependent. <laughs> the tree falls in the forest. <laughs> and, and so you know, the more people that I come in contact with, the, the better chance I'm, I'm going to be able to, because I'm constantly watching my behaviors at this point and different behaviors are going to come out with different people. And so like, so work being one, Stephanie or friends. I personally am not in a community like a, like a recovery community. I have, I have a little catching up to do when it comes to uh, social, the social side of things personally, because I've avoided people for much of my life. <laughs> I work remotely. I work from home. So it's, it's going to take a little effort for me to uh, build a little bit of and previous to our relationship, he was involved for 12 years in two different relationships with very abusive people. And, you know, this can be the challenge as well. And, and we've talked about this, as Brian's saying, codependency is an interpersonal disorder, and it makes it difficult 
to form and maintain an intimate relationship. So a lot of people, when they come to the point where they feel they have to do something and they're not maybe in a position, social position, a relationship position in which that's easy work to do because they have been kind of isolated by their codependent behaviors and the relationships that have resulted from those codependent behaviors. But that's, yeah, I mean, one of the first things that Brian recognized that he had to do was to get rid of any person who was toxic or activating. Kind of step one before building the community, being in an actively abusive situation is is not going to promote healing. Finding a community that's going to help you get out of it is going to make that much easier, of course. Right. Then maintain that community and then watching the type of people, being intentional about the type of people that you are surrounding yourself with. Being in dialogue with each other, I think, has made a huge difference. But then, as we've said, starting the podcast which has you know, forced us to talk more with each other, but also allowed us to get feedback from a larger group of people. It just accelerates tremendously the, our understanding of all of this. Yeah. yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah, but you make a good point about, um, now I'm just thinking about clients that I've told, like, oh, community is going to be such an important aspect to your healing. Like, make sure you're in communities. And now I'm thinking about some of my clients who, like, can't seem to get there in finding their community. And now that makes a lot, a lot more sense that, yeah, maybe they're on the other you know, side of, of the code of codependency coin where they're like, those being in community is really challenging for me as opposed to, I feel like my codependency manifests is like, I get real, I get lots of hits. I get like lots of dopamine and adrenaline, and, right? I'm super um, extroverted. I'm like, oh, I get my my kicks in, in being in community. So I've like co- cultivated all these different types of community. Whereas Brian, maybe you're a little bit more introverted. Maybe, but, but for me, it was more just, I was on constant alert for threats and everything was a threat to me. So it was difficult for me to reach out to people to build a community because I was afraid of everyone. So his people pleasing was more on the compliance side. Yeah. And, you know, when we have friends or people in our life who maybe are on the codependency spectrum, whose people pleasing maybe was more what you were capable of doing, you know, kind of being charming in the 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 life of the party, although that's exhausting as I'm, I'm sure you've experienced. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they found it very easily to go into social spaces and perform. But even for them, I think difficult to turn those social spaces into actual community where they have intimate relationships that they feel they can depend on, which is one reason, even though Brian didn't experience CODA and it had a kind of mi- mixed experience with AA, those are built-in communities. They're yeah. kind of ready to go. That was the one thing I would I would recommend about those for sure is the community aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. The the journey uh, is a lifelong journey. Yeah, right. <laughs> Learning about yourself. Yes. And then, can I ask one more question? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So then, so as somebody who now is pretty excited to get into a healthy relationship and you guys are obviously there when you met one another how did you recognize that you were like okay like we're gonna either do something different here or yeah brian how were you vulnerable and upfront about what you know you were how you were on your healing journey and and stephanie for you whatever you were going through at the time like how did you guys navigate that getting into healthy relationship it was it was nothing like that (laughs) okay okay it was very much actually how you described maybe your previous relationship where we were both quite a bit in love before we realized, oh my goodness, 
<laughs> we have a problem yeah, here. Yeah, there's something going on with me, um, with my reactions to various things. And I was still involved with my my ex as far as going through a divorce and things like that. And uh, so Stephanie was seeing a lot of behaviors that were very confusing. You know, we talk about a lot about this in the podcast. Um, so won't rehash too much for the listeners, but it's there's it a lot of shame based behaviors. And I went into freeze a lot because I had a lot of trauma that we didn't talk about in this episode that I carried ever since I was a little child. And uh, I had trauma responses that I was completely unaware of that would put me into freeze. And uh, so either when I was in that state, I would either not be able to speak at all, or it very mo- at the very most, I would just say blurt out the first thing that I could think of that would kind of try to end the conversation more or less. Um, I was very dishonest. Just so these things just started coming out that just weren't lining up for Stephanie. And uh, it was actually causing some damage too, pretty quickly throughout that process. So just together, we started looking at these things. It was messy. Yeah, it was very messy. It was messy for a long time. But when we discovered the codependency framework, which was not a framework that either of us were familiar with, that became a great tool to discovering what was had happened to Brian, what was happening with Brian, and what was happening between the two of us. And, it, you know, I compared it early on. It did seem like, to me, like an addiction. I mean, I think it's, you know, that's a worthwhile yeah. analogy. And so it, it it was helpful to me. We, we had for a while a way of talking about Brian as there was a codependent Brian and there was an authentic Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Just like there was a, you know, a, there was a person as they act when they're on drugs and the person whether they act when, when they're, they're themselves. And uh, so as, as you can imagine, working with people who are going through that with loved ones, it was very messy for us for a long time. And there was a lot of difficult conversations and a lot of healing that we had to do within the relationship in addition to the healing that, that Brian needed to do. But, you know, I got to say, it, it's been the best work of my life. There's, there's, there's nothing like that. I mean, you do it professionally, but doing it with someone you love is even more meaningful and fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. And that, and it's just a testament to, to you guys that you were able to, you know, work out what was probably coming up for both of you, you know, where like you guys could have easily decided, oh, this anxious avoidance dance that we're playing, like a lot of people bail, right? A lot of people should bail, like if they're not gonna really jump in with two feet and say, okay, this could be a healing relationship for both of us if we're both willing and able and ready to take a look, right? I just, I think a lot of people don't realize that they can be in a relationship where there's going to be the opportunity for that healing to take place, regardless of the different sort of attachment styles or the codependency that's happening within them. Uh, a lot of people bail or just go on to the next person and play out the same pattern and realize, don't, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if at some point you guys realize like, okay, well, we actually could work this out together because we just keep doing the same thing anyway with other people. I just... I lucked out in a major way meeting Stephanie because nobody I'd met prior to that was like her. You know, I pretty much met disordered people. <laughs> I was only involved with disordered people. So, so that right off the bat, but then the level of self-awareness that Stephanie had and the fact that we went right into these daily conversations about this stuff. And, and I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to a couple, a new couple, you know, <laughs> you may want to get a therapist involved. Yeah. Um, we tried at one point, but we were like, we're kind of ahead of, of this already. So we just went back to our, but we were talking about this stuff every single day for years. 
And I lucked out. We're just going to say nice things about each other, right? <laughs> I lucked out with Brian because I had had largely healthy relationships, but I had asked people in my life to, to step up, do some work with me and to really take things, you know, to the next level or to get to a level of emotional intimacy that I really wanted and craved in my life. And Brian is the first person to really step up and do that. And he had, a it was a big step for him. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because he wasn't about polishing the edges. I mean, he he really had to do some huge major lifting. I pretty much had zero intimacy for the twelve years leading up to meeting Stephanie. And and you hadn't looked at your your childhood or at your trauma, or you didn't ha- really have any understanding what had been happened to you. And you every day put in the work and brought it to me, and we hashed it out. So it is a lot of work, no question. But I don't I, I don't know whether the work you think would be more important. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. Then the, yeah, figuring each other out and figuring. Yeah. Yeah. And how you take care, you know, now it sounds like you're so aware and understanding of what each of you has been through. And so that you know how to like take care of one another mm-hmm. in a really caring and kind way and, and can look at when the other is experiencing a wound, right? Like, so something is coming up for, for either of you, you can say, oh, that's like the little version. Like you said, there's like codependent Brian and not codependent Brian, or like the little version of Stephanie that Brian's like, okay, this is okay. Here's a moment now where I get to like show up and, and help take care of my, my partner in the way that I've now learned to do so because we both chose to, to really do this work together. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And the difference between the codependent me that would say, recognize that say Stephanie was suffering versus the now me, the authentic me is that the codependent me would say, what, what, how does this implicate me? How, how she's upset. Is she upset at me? What am I supposed to do for myself in this situation? How do I make her not upset? Yeah, at me? How do I make her not upset? Basically, it's because this is scaring me. And then the authentic, like, what is she feeling? I want to know what she's experiencing here. That's what's important. And being okay with that it may not have anything to do with you at all. This maybe has nothing to do with me. And I don't have to worry about that it, it's my fault or and make it my fault and then resent her for it, you know? It, or, or if it does, I don't need to go into a shame spiral about it too. Oh, that's true too. I just want to understand what it is that's upsetting her. Yeah. Being neutral to many situations in my codependency recovery has been... I'm like, oh, I can be neutral? Then, wow. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I, re- I remember getting into, like, starting the recovery process of, like, working a 12-step program and being like, what am I going to do with all my time if I'm not, like, worrying and obsessing and overthinking everything? That's weird. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that, that, that uh, beautiful middle ground, right, where it doesn't have to be them and it doesn't have to be you. <laughs> yeah, amazing. It's an amazing feeling. It's a, it really is. Well, thank you so much, yeah, Bren, you. for coming on and for talking about your experience. And I'm I'm excited to um, direct some people your way in uh, in terms of resources that you have. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie and Brian. This was awesome. I was just so glad that I could share my story and my experience, and hopefully, you know, help somebody in the process. I think it absolutely will. Every voice counts. Awesome. Thank you.